Hello everyone, it's December 11th, 2018. So yeah, we gotta talk about that Falcon 9 first stage water landing, and of course we gotta talk about Elon's latest Twitter crumbs. I sometimes think he's leading us in circles. Speaking of going in circles, let's get to orbit and liftoff. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 188 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm sleepy. I mean, I'm Ben. And I'm what was Dennis. it you did last week? <laughs> turkey. You said you're I'm turkey. Turkey, yeah. turkey last week. <laughs> yeah. You were turkey and now you're sleepy and you really do seem to be sleepy. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna be working my way through all of the 12 dwarves. The se- seven dwarves. Yeah, seven dwarves. One of them is turkey. I know one of them is sleepy. That sounds about right. You know, you could be right for all I know. You know how long it's been since I've seen the... Whatever it is, is it Snow White? See, I don't even know what's uh, yeah, right. what it's Yeah, I, I was never allowed to watch Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs because there was magic in it. Oh, okay. Ah. I saw it once as a kid, and uh, it's kind of terrifying now. Like, it's just a very old movie, and old mm-hmm. animated movies are yep. kind of dark in a way that's hard to explain. Oh, yeah, it was intense. Uh-huh. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and even some of them are based on, like, some of the fairy tales and whatnot that they were based on are even worse right. than, like, the Disney version. <laughs> right. Before we move on, actually, I forgot to ask, how was the meetup? I was going to say, we got to definitely do a shout out because that was so much fun. I wish I could have been there. Yeah, me too. But yeah, it couldn't have been a better group of people. We were just nerding out. <laughs> it was basically just geeks geeking out for a couple hours. Yeah, I was kind of surprised at how little space talk there was, actually. We uh, we contented ourselves mm-hmm. with a lot of a lot of different topics. Yeah. If you talk about space all day long, then maybe you talk about something else if you have the opportunity. Yeah. It only makes sense. And I assume you drank, I'm not going to say heavily, but sufficiently. We we, we, had, we, had, we only had a round, but it was a delicious round. Well, I, I had a beer before everybody got there, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty much all the alcohol I had that week, except mm. for the company party, which had a, a, an open bar. So of course I had to Yeah. Well, that, if it's but, free. Right. That was a blast. Thanks for coming out, everyone that came out. Yeah, it was great to see everybody. I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah. I think with that, we'll move on to this week in Spaceflight <laughs> History. All right, so we do have a couple winners, so this was oh, a yeah. good clue. So you remember how I told you last week that it was a much better clue than before? I, mm-hmm. I was totally mm-hmm. right. Uh, we had some correct guesses, we had some partially correct guesses, and we had some outright wrong guesses. And to me, that means that it was a really good clue. Uh, our winners for this week are Jason Friesen, uh, HZ Science on Twitter, uh, ben Haller and Jack Lishman and then Valentin Frank gets partial credit because he guessed the correct event but for the wrong reason and there was a very specific reason so this uh, the clue for this week was two Roman candles so this week in spaceflight history is the 12th of December 1965 it was the Gemini 6 launch abort or I guess I should start saying Gemini because that's how they pronounced it so first in the show notes is going to be a link to uh, an Amy Shearer title video called Why Did Gemini Use Ejection Seats? And so we're, I'm not going to talk about why they use ejection seats because she covered it so well um, and she's got photos and everything. So uh, go check out her video. So basically what happened was, you know, they set the vehicle up on the pad count all the way down they're ready to launch um, they actually get down to t minus zero and they start the engines and unfortunately uh, there was an umbilical uh, an electrical umbilical that disconnected early so the way that 
that the Gemini launches work is they actually have hold down clamps that uh, don't release until plus 3.2 seconds. So, you know, we're, we're kind of familiar with this, uh, this strategy of launching rockets. So before 3.2 seconds, one of the uh, electrical umbilicals vibrated itself loose. Um, so the vehicle knows that the launch has, the launch sequence has not completed successfully. So it shuts everything down. So we have this weird situation where there's engine shutdown, but no ejection occurred. No, the launch escape system was not uh, fired. And of course, the launch escape system for Gemini was almost completely manual. I don't even know if there were any automatic ejection criteria. So we've got engine shutdown, but no ejection. We've got the liftoff indicator in the cabin is illuminated, but there hasn't actually been movement of the vehicle. Um, so I think there was some poor design. They didn't think through all of the different cases that might occur, but basically the, the vehicle hadn't moved, but it told the astronauts that it had. And, and so all that was due to the umbilical wiggling itself loose. But actually it turns out that even if that umbilical had stayed where it was supposed to, um, there was another issue that would have kept the vehicle from successfully lifting off at 3.2 seconds. Uh, there inside the engine, there was a plastic cover that was left in during assembly of the, of the engine. And this plastic cover was partially uh, blocking uh, liquid oxygen flow to, I believe, engine two. I think engine number one got up to full thrust or was on its way to full thrust and everything looked okay. But engine two, the pressure was way, way, way too low. Um, so it would have caused an, a launch abort anyway. So like I said, these these ejection seats were manly, manually controlled, so they had a bunch of rules on when to pull uh, when to pull the ring and eject uh, themselves out of the rocket. Since the mission clock was running because they had gotten down to T minus zero, that starts the the mission elapsed timer. So that's running. So the rules at that point switch from stay safe and just stay in the capsule to get the heck out of there. And, and that's that's actually a good thing, right? Because if you are lifting off of the pad and you have an engine failure, an engine shutdown, what's going to happen to your rocket? It's landing on the pad tail first, which as we all know, is not the best way to land a rocket that's not designed for that. Uh, it potentially could cause a huge explosion uh, and kill everybody on board. So the idea is as soon as you lift off, if there's any issues, get the heck out of there. So it, it's scary to launch uh, on an ejection seat. Uh, because these things have super, super high G-forces, and it's really an unpleasant ride. But it's more pleasant than being near an exploding rocket, right? So anyway, Wally Shira's in charge of the mission, and he gets basically the command, hey, you need to eject, is what the capsule tells him. You need to get out of here. But he can feel that they haven't left the pad yet. And he can tell that they're still sitting on the pad, and they're not moving. And so his determination was, I'm not going to eject. And that's that's a really good thing because we're coming up on the clue. Later on, Tom Stafford talked about how there was this unknown danger that they hadn't realized and that, that, that we wouldn't realize until the Apollo 1 pad fire. Um, so basically, they had tested these ejection seats, right? And we knew that they were safe for people. But the problem is that the tests had all occurred in a capsule filled with nitrogen, right? Because they go, oh, let's, let's make this test as safe as possible. They fill it with nitrogen. But that's not what they did on the pad. They actually filled 
the cabin with pure oxygen. And not only was it filled with oxygen, but they had been soaking in it for hours, which means that all of the little uh, air pockets in uh, the fabric of the suits, in the fabric of the seats, and every little nook and cranny uh, had been soaked out with, with oxygen. And so if they would have pulled the ejection seat, they would have turned themselves into two Roman candles. That's where the clue comes from. I mean, it, it would have been an inflagration. It would not have been good. They would have burned at an explosive rate because as far as, you know, normally when your clothes are burning, there's a little bit of fire resistance as the fire, you know, starves itself for oxygen and it has to wait for new oxygen to seep in. But if your clothes are soaked with oxygen, uh, you know, if, if every single component on that ejection seat is soaked in oxygen, it just, it, it gets real bad real quick. So, uh, Wally Shira, you know, saved their lives and it turned out to be totally okay. They saved the vehicle, you know, they pulled all the propellants out and they, you know, got, got the astronauts out. They broke the whole rocket down searching for why the, the second uh, rocket chamber wasn't coming up to pressure or a combustion chamber wasn't coming up to pressure. They eventually found this, uh, this little cover, um, but it, it took them a while. Anyway, there you go. That's your This Week in Space Flight History. This situation is the same one that killed the Apollo 1 crew. Mm-hmm. It's just that in this case, that didn't happen because they didn't have to eject, but they would have lit themselves on fire because this is pure oxygen at 15 or 16 PSI. So it seems like that that was something that was almost like waiting to happen, and mm-hmm. unfortunately it did. Yeah, so like even in an off-nominal situation where they would have had to eject, they most likely would not have survived even even that I, I think I think once they were flying fast enough it would have been okay something tells me that the atmosphere streaming over your suits as you're mm-hmm. as you're ejecting uh, at high altitude mm-hmm. probably means you know the the oxygen's gonna get diluted real quick because you've got such a low pressure around you it can you know, soak out real quick. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't going to be pretty one way or the other, huh? It seems to me like they would have been ejecting from a fireball because, I mean, the cabin would have instantly exploded. (laughs) They would have been Roman candles. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's insane. Okay. So moving on to next week's awesome clue that will not confuse anyone. What is our clue for next week? (laughs) All right. Next week in 1999, the clue is fixing door latches. Cool. Well, if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. A fun CRS-16 landing. But yeah, this was probably the most interesting one I've seen in quite a while. So first off, CRS-16 was a successful mission, uh, just maybe not 100% successful mm-hmm. as far as SpaceX is concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we had a first stage touchdown a few miles off the Florida coast instead of its landing pad. And one thing that is interesting is that this was a brand new booster, which was a question that I was actually asking myself up until today because I finally found out. So this is not a reused first stage. So this is brand new Block 5. So, I mean, we have some idea of what happened, but I guess I'm really wondering how could this happen? Like, I kind of thought they had all this worked out, and Mm -hmm. yet... Clearly they don't, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised because this is all very new technology. But every time something like this happens, like just think how many more unknown things are there that could fail that they think that they have all Mm -hmm. worked out. It literally is rocket science. (laughs) It literally is rocket surgery. Um, So I think an important thing to note here is that 
the system that failed is a single string system. There are no backups for the system because they've decided the uh, the risk is acceptable and the consequences are are acceptable. So this this isn't something that should scare us about future flights. Um, yes, there are definitely unknowns, like you said, David, but this was a known risk. And they they accepted it and decided that they didn't want a backup. If I mean, it, it seems to me that I mean I don't know how much more complexity a backup would add, but it seems like it would be worth it so that you don't ditch your first it's, stage in the ocean. <laughs> I think it, I think it's all about mass. Mass on the first stage is super critical. Well, okay, well that's a bad way to put it because you pay more for mass on the second stage than you do for an equivalent mass on the first stage. But let, let's let's say mass on a rocket is super critical. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's for sure. put it that yeah. way instead. I suppose that right now the margins are pretty tight, but I think you know, I think in the future a system like this will definitely have something to mitigate this problem because mm-hmm. I mean they just haven't gotten that far yet. Right. What I'm wondering is right. So the the issue is that the hydraulics failed. Right. The helium didn't get pumped into one of the because it basically tries to lift all of the uh, grid fins. It tries to lift all of them and one of them didn't quite make it. It was kind of turned a bit and that caused, you know, the stage to start spinning around and everything. But I guess, you know, what they're looking at now is why did it fail to activate that particular one? You know what I mean? And maybe if they get a better handling of why that happened, then they could talk about whether redundancy is necessary or worth it. Elon said that that the pump stalled. So we're definitely looking at the grid fins aren't the issue here. Um, the pump was not able to get mm-hmm. up to full pressure. And so the, the symptom of that was, you know, three grid fins look okay and the fourth doesn't. But, you know, even if it, it I think it just as easily could have been, you know, all three got up to, you know, three quarters deployment state um, instead of, you know, mm-hmm. one kind of going all wacky. So So the question here really comes down to, what does this pump look like? Uh, how does this pump stall? Was it was it just you know a, a damaged motor? You know it could have been as easy as you know a motor was damaged during shipping or something. Mm-hmm. Did you guys know about this uh, this sort of contingency that it would land in the water if it yeah. knew it was having trouble? So that's what it's designed to do, right? Or that's mm-hmm. how the reentry profile right. is actually designed. So. Yeah, it's going to land in the water yeah, if they, something goes they wrong. They start targeting the water, whether they're landing on land or on ASDS. They target the water. So if, you know, and I think that's mostly if your engines don't start up, you're going to splash in the water. But clearly it covers other contingencies like, hey, mm-hmm. my control systems aren't working. I don't know why, but the control systems aren't working. It can decide to not divert to its landing site. I think that's really cool that when you're landing, you're actually diverting for, to a, a better landing site. That's a really cool way to mm-hmm. think about it. Like, let's say that it got closer to land before something went wrong. According to Hans Koenigsmann, the vehicle actually can, you know, still like target certain places that are less of a risk of loss of human life. So it can still maybe go back out to sea or maybe just find a nice big like open patch of land mm-hmm. and just crash right, there instead. Right. Yeah, it can identify buildings and try to avoid them. I, I think that's a pre-programmed behavior. I don't believe that it has the ability to analyze buildings as it's coming in. I think they give it like keep out zones um, because doing that kind of analysis while you're falling from a rocket seems really ridiculous when 
all those things have been in place for years, those buildings. <laughs> so just do the <laughs> math ahead of time. Right. And so one question that some people had was how did the vehicle reduce its spin? Because the engines do have thrust vectoring, but in this case, there was just the one engine, right, coming right. down. Mm -hmm. And so you can't do that with just one engine. Um, but you can see, you can actually see the cold gas thrusters trying to take out that roll moment there. Um, and I guess they were successful because it actually does slow down towards the end. Well, mm -hmm. here, here's the thing. This vehicle has a fixed moment of inertia, right? Um, nothing you can do is going to change its moment of inertia unless you actively uh, reduce its mass, which it, as soon as it starts up those engines, it is reducing its mass, but um, it's not by a whole bunch. And the mass reduction is in the center of the vehicle. So it's, you know, not going to be super uh, effective at changing the moment of inertia. Um, what people mm -hmm. were talking about. Well, so if you watch the, the footage, uh, it's spinning, spinning, spinning. And then there's a moment when it drastically slows its, its spin rate. And if mm -hmm. you're paying attention, you'll notice that that moment when it drastically reduces the rate of spin is as the legs extend. So this is the ballerina effect. But I'm not sure that it is, though. Did you watch the video? Because it seems like it stopped spinning before then. Then the legs deployed. Uh, it's, At least to it, me. It slows, but it it's a pretty good correlation. I've watched it a couple of times, mm -hmm. and to my eye, it, it's, it's pretty good. Um, so what people were arguing was, okay, uh, what happens is it deploys its legs, and then all of a sudden the uh, thrusters have less spin to counteract, and the cold gas thrusters are more effective. But that, that's wrong because it has a fixed moment of inertia. So even though it's spinning slower, that actually means that the the thrusters are less effective. Um, and if you watch the video, it doesn't completely stop rotating when it hits the water. You can only really see it from the onboard footage. And it's tough to tell because the, sm uh, the smoke, I was going to call it steam, <laughs> the smoke from <laughs> the engines, you know, splays out on the water and uh, hides the surface of the water. So it's harder to tell if it's rotating, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that it was still rotating when it hit the surface of the water. Um, and I don't know if it, if it was able to slow itself down enough so that it could have actually landed on land, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. So I'm rewatching the footage right now. It is still spinning slightly. And yeah, the yeah. spin seems to stop just as the legs are coming down, like quite mm -hmm. quickly, like, like even before they're fully deployed, right. like just as they start to move away from the surface of the body, it starts to slow down, which it, which is kind of beautiful. It's like, hey, physics works. Well, yeah, <laughs> we know that that part works. And so the, the key here for me is when it hits the water um, from the onboard footage, you can tell that it, it hits the water and it almost spins the opposite direction as the water slows it down real quick and starts uh, imparting quite a lot of rotational force, right? Those those legs give you a very long moment arm. And so the water mm -hmm. can really apply a lot of force. And so it kind of wobbles before it falls and it it's clear that the speed of rotation halts when it hits the water so i think i think i'm pretty happy to say that yeah it it still was rotating when it hit the water it kind of like sort of like translates horizontally a little mm -hmm. bit too so mm -hmm. it doesn't touch mm -hmm. down you know dead center but um one other thing that was pointed out, I believe, by Scott Manley in his video, which is awesome, by the way, you should totally watch that. And I know that we say that like every week, but yeah, <laughs> always watch his post-game analysis, is that the cold gas thrusters that were trying to stop that rotation, you can see the vehicle pitch by quite a bit, which is probably also due to gyroscopic precession so that it kind of, you know, moves like 90 degrees because it mm -hmm. really tilts. It's mm -hmm. so good. Like the quality of footage that we have and the speed with which it was released just was really good on this one. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Elon even said that it was 
they mistakenly cut away from it during the webcast. Um, he said that he wanted to actually broadcast the failure live, but they, they act. And, and, you know, it, it would be really easy to cynically say, well, that's, you know, clearly not true. But the fact that they released it so quickly afterwards, I, I think it's, uh, no, I was, I watched the live and, uh, once they cut away from it, I started yelling because you could see the rotation start to pick up and I'm like, Ooh, that's not quite right. And then mm -hmm. they cut away. And I spent the rest of the time yelling at the television. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, but yeah, I, and so I was cynically thinking, yeah, you know, exactly. Oh, these goddamn, some bean counter somewhere was like, cut the footage. We can't, you know, but, uh, I take that back once I saw how quickly, uh, Elon tweeted it out. So, and I don't know when they said mistake, whether or not that meant that they planned to do it and it was a mistake to cut away or whether they mistakenly cut away. I'm yeah. guessing the former. I think you're probably right. One other interesting thing is that this just landed two miles off the coast and they were able to recover the stage, but that's actually because they were also like able to depressurize it, which um apparently in the past, and I don't even recall exactly which mission this was, but they weren't able to recover a first stage because they couldn't depressurize the RP-1 tank. And so mm -hmm. if you can't do that, then it's a no-go. Mm -hmm. So that's a command that was sent from mission control, which, you know, they could do because it hadn't, this vehicle was pretty close. So it was not over the horizon. So they might reuse this, I see correctly, uh, Elon tweeting that they might reuse this for their own sort of internal SpaceX mission. Or you think he's just... So I wonder if they might do it for the for an in-flight abort test. Well, that's a possibility. True. Yeah, but I mean, probably not going to be reused like on an actual mission. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Maybe they offer a really, really big discount or something. It's like a <laughs> clearance rocket or something. You know? <laughs> so uh, ju just for future reference, this is uh, Booster Core uh, 1050, I believe. So if you see mm -hmm. 1050 come up again, that's this one. And there's some great photos taken by John Krauss. Mm -hmm. I think we've talked about him before in the past. Mm -hmm. And there's one in particular that has a really good shot of the interstage, the inside of mm -hmm. the top of the first stage. Yeah, you can see the, the hydraulic pusher and the grid fin actuators. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just kind of there for all to see. Like, I mean, like just as long as you can look down into it, you can see mm -hmm. the hydraulics, you can see pistons, you can see wiring, you mm -hmm. can see the fluid lines and all of that. It, it all sits right there on the surface. But now do we know still exactly what kind of fluid this is pressurized with helium it is helium like is that confirmed okay uh, that's what uh i got from the everyday astronaut uh the tanks are pressurized with helium but i think david's asking about the hydraulic system oh he was claiming the hydraulic system was helium well, as no, well. It, but then, it, was... then it would be a pneumatic system at one point they were talking about um pressurizing with rp1 but it sounds like now they're just using a regular hydraulic fluid but yeah, I don't, I don't believe there's been a really good confirmation. Although um, space is kind of cool and the chat points out that the grid fins will get reused for sure. Because um, yeah, these are the nice brand new titanium grid fins that are very expensive. And yeah, I, I agree. I think there is zero chance that they won't pull them off and put them on a new a new vehicle. I mean, just imagine it had the thing been like unrecoverable and it sunk, they still, I think, <laughs> would have sent people out to recover them. Because Yeah, depending on how far offshore it is, yeah. Well, I mean, if they didn't do it, someone else would, because, I mean, <laughs> that's the kind of a thing that I'd be down to do, you know, go get some massive titanium grid fins. And they are massive. Yeah, I would, yeah. I would make a dining table out of these things. Let's talk about SpaceX some more. So now let's talk about the latest tweets from Elon Musk. Um, this is a very SpaceX-heavy episode, yeah. So we have some more insight into what's going on with the uh, BFR or Starship or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. I, in fact, is it still called the ITS? Is that still what the whole system is called? I cannot keep track of how many times he renames these things. Yeah, right. I guess this was all precipitated by a post made by someone on 
Twitter and then Elon responded, which seems to be how he does things. He just kind of responds when he feels like it. So I'm sure it was his decision. I mean, he was probably planning on saying something that same day anyway. Because, yeah, like you said, the original tweet was about taking off the grid fins from that other Falcon 9. And then it kind of turned into exactly what this starship will be made of. And it's... Yeah, uh, it's it's metal. But it's... <laughs> but it's... Yeah, I think he said metal, but it's not going to be some kind of, you know, carbon composite or anything like that. It's mm-hmm. just metal. And that includes the tanks because I have to say that is delightfully counterintuitive. Right, right. And that's the, the thing here is that we've definitely uh, been told from Elon that the new design is, is non-intuitive. And yeah, David, I think you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> Making the whole thing out of a heavy metal is unintuitive uh, for SpaceX. For anybody else building a vehicle, they'd go, yeah, let's make the thing out of metal because that's how we build uh, spaceships. Um, but since SpaceX has been talking about, you know, we're going to use this lightweight carbon over and over and over, they keep saying this. And the thing is that he said that this is an unintuitive design, but it works really well. So if that's all they're doing, that's that's not unintuitive for most people. It's It sounds like it's just SpaceX giving up on a construction technique that they have, you know, like verbally committed to, you know, a, a, you know, no, they're not required to do anything. But it's not, it sounds like they were really into... Uh, the idea of using carbon tanks and that they had tested carbon tanks and like spent a lot of time figuring out how to use carbon tanks. And so if they're not going to use carbon tanks, what the heck does that mean? So does this just apply to the spaceship portion of the vehicle or are we talking about the first stage as well? Because they because they have a tank, you know, already tested, right? I mean, we've we've seen that. The carbon tank that was already tested was for the spaceship. It was not large enough. Spaceship. Yeah, okay. it was not nearly large enough to be for the launcher. So is that tank going to remain the same? Like they're they're going to use wish the carbon? I, I wish I knew. That's the okay. question in it. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me read this tweet chain. So uh, Elon was talking about the titanium grid fins, and somebody said, "What is the actual booster made from?" Steel question mark, and they were talking about Falcon 9 first stage. And Tim Dodd replies, Aluminum, some parts are made of carbon composite, like the inner stage, but their new Starship and Super Heavy will be all carbon composite, or mostly all carbon composite. That's what we have understood up to this point. Then Elon replies to Tim Dodd and says, The new design is metal. Then he said, uh, Fairly heavy metal, but extremely strong. So that that sounds like titanium. So so maybe they have figured out a way to machine titan gigantic titanium uh tanks uh I I don't know. And so a bunch of people ask questions um wavelength brewings, you know, asked is this to help meet timelines. Uh John Barrington asked are all structural components metal? You know, just a bunch of questions and Elon, you know, just STFU and got out of there. Mm-hmm. Stopped answering questions. Hmm. But I think it's fair to expect um, an update coming up. So um, during the Dear Moon announcement, they didn't really talk about any technical changes. They kind of just said, "Here's you know our operational plans." And uh, Tim Dodd asked if you know if this big change, this uh, unintuitive design change, is is the reason that the Dear Moon announcement didn't have any technical updates and Elon said yes that's why. So this is something that's been in the works since at, you know at least before Dear Moon. So which means that it probably has no connection to well yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, but 
didn't, but there, but there were updates during the Dear Moon speech that he gave, right? Because I mean, that was when he unveiled a whole new spaceship design, right? But and and then later on, he said they had changed from that, I believe. Uh, okay, it's, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, super clear. Mm-hmm. Um, right, yeah. Space is kind of cool in the chat. Says the SR seventy one Titanium caused Lockheed a huge amount of trouble. Yep. So unintuitive <laughs> seems to be the right <laughs> the right thing to say there, right? <laughs> But when we when we talked, or I I just said, you know, I expect that since we didn't get a technical update during uh, Dear Moon, that I'm kind of expecting something, you know, soonish uh, in the in the next couple of months. Uh, it's interesting uh, because Elon also tweeted uh, cool pics of the demo Starship that will fly suborbital hops coming in roughly four weeks, uh, which you know probably means next summer. <laughs> right. But but they're. You know, they said that they're developing both the uh, Starship and Super Heavy, the the Starship and the launcher, but uh, that they are currently building the demo Starship, which is really cool. Uh, And then he says that the Super Heavy hardware will start getting built in spring, which means we probably won't see video of either one until summer, and then they won't start actually constructing Super Heavy until fall. Uh, But, you know, whatever. We'll we'll see what happens. Um, Now, is this demo Starship, is that the one? Is this the one that's going to be put on a a modified Falcon 9 or something along those lines? No, uh, Starship cannot be put on a Falcon 9. It's too wide of a diameter. Uh, by far, the demo starship is basically going to be Grasshopper or uh, F9R Dev, I think is what they called it. Falcon 9 reusable development. So the the one that was out in McGregor that did hops up and down and scared cows. So this is different than that mini BFS at the time he was calling it, right? Yeah, this is this is different than that from my understanding because they're calling it a demo starship, not mini sec- second starship. stage. Yeah, not not the Falcon 9 reusable upper stage thing that they were talking about, which I believe is now next. I don't think they're going to do that anymore. Right. Well, the uh, they are still planning on testing or doing some tests with the Falcon 9 that will test like some of the technologies of the Starship, just like on a much smaller scale. Isn't that what he said? That's what they said, <laughs> but I don't know if that's still in the works because they... It's kind of been a little bit of back and forth that is hard to keep track of. Hmm. Hard to understand what he's talking about. I'll have to make like a spreadsheet of just, you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Things I, Elon there, is saying. there are so many spreadsheets out there and it's doesn't still nobody knows what the heck he's talking about. <laughs> um, so in the chat, uh, space is kind of cool, has a really cool little insight that uh, I didn't think about. So titanium has got a higher a higher melting temp, uh, which is I mean that's why they're using it on fa- the Falcon 9 grid fins, right? Because the aluminum literally got hot enough to start melting holes in it. So if they have this higher melting temp, they might be able to not use any ablative heat shields. Although uh, <laughs> Sam is very wisely saying, I don't think there's much point talking about BFR design right now, to be honest. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. I think we're. I think we could sit here and spin our wheels for a long time and and never get close to what's actually going to happen. So this is the speculation hour. Right yeah, now. yeah, yeah. We have to be very clear. This is all speculation. We have no idea, and I mean we, as in nobody outside of SpaceX, uh, and likely not a lot of people inside SpaceX either. All right, moving on to short and sweet. And what is our first one? Osiris Rex has entered orbit around Bennu. 
which is pretty awesome. Uh, after a series of braking maneuvers over the past several months, NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft has successfully entered orbit around the asteroid Bennu. Orbiting only 19 kilometers above Bennu's sun-facing side, the spacecraft will begin a preliminary survey of the asteroid, refining estimates of Bennu's mass, spin rate, and shape. In February 2019, OSIRIS-REx will begin extensive mapping of the asteroid surface, which will be used to determine the best site for sample collection. And next up, uh, Chang'e 4 launches successfully. On December 7th, the Chang'e mission lifted off, delivering its payload successfully into lunar transfer orbit. The journey to the moon will take about five days before lunar orbit injection. There is still no official announcement as to when the Chang'e lander and rover will touch down on the far side of the moon. But Chinese officials have specified a landing in the first days of January. The land will be in the Von Kármán crater, which will pass into sunlight later this month. So I guess that's why they did it then, mm. or are doing it then. Yeah, it's the almost like they knew what they were doing. <laughs> well, I mean, that it has to be a warm crater in order for them to land in it, right? Like, they wanted to make sure, or well, not warm, but it has to be in sunlight, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, next, Astra Space suffers a launch failure. All five engines failed, said FAA Acting Administrator Dan Elwell about the November 29th launch. We don't know much about Astrospace, but their recent launch failure appears to have happened early in flight as all debris remained within the spaceport. And lastly, and fourthly, we got four of them, uh, Mars InSight has returned images of the Martian surface and has flexed its arm. Uh, Its first task will be to take images of the surface directly in front of the lander and to find suitable locations for its suite of instruments. InSight was also able to capture the first sounds of Martian wind. Such noise is actually undesirable for the sensitive instruments on the lander. The sound captured is very low frequency due to the thin atmosphere, but still audible. JPO was able to track dust devils that were in the area and confirmed their movement as being consistent with the wind recording. So that's very cool. I didn't even know that we had never heard anything from the surface mm-hmm. of Mars. Yeah, can we can we play that audio? Yeah, so we can play it. Um, here's an example that's pitched up two octaves because the original is kind of low, very hard to hear. But if you listen to it, like if you listen to it at the higher pitch, it sounds just like earth wind, actually. It sounds just like a cold, scary, stormy night or something. Yeah. It sounds like when you go to just a windy place with a microphone and it's not properly covered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, no questions, comments, and corrections. We do have upcoming spaceflight events, so let's get right to that. We got a couple of them. First one coming up on December 13th is uh, an electron launch that's launching VCLS Ilana 19. Yeah, so VCLS is Venture Class Launch Services, and it is to launch 10 CubeSats. Um, as part of a CubeSat launch initiative education launch of NanoSats. I don't know if I read that right. So it's CubeSat launch initiatives, educational launch of nanosatellites. I guess it's just because I'm, I'm seeing the word launch twice. If you like that, uh, Sam points out that VCLS is the dedicated launches for Alana. So this is the venture class launch services contract of CubeSat launch initiative, educational <laughs> launch of nan- nanosatellites. So you get three in there, three for the price of one launch. Yep. All right, that's too many launches. I'm glad you took this one, David. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so this is a contract with NASA to launch 10 CubeSats as part of a launch initiative. That's as much as I'll say. <laughs> and yeah, it's part of the Elana program, the educational launch of nanosatellites. And that's launching from uh, Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1. And as I said, that's December 13th. Uh, launch window is between 0400 UTC and 0800 UTC. So a four-hour launch window. Pretty cool. You you roll the dice and you take the, you take the orbit you're given. Um, next up is a Falcon 9 Block 5. 
Live launching GPS 3A1. And I think we all know what a GPS satellite is. Um, so this is flying on December 18th. Uh, and it has uh, a fairly wide launch window because it's going to geostationary or geostationary transfer orbit. Um, so the launch window opens at 1410 hours UTC and continues for about a half hour till 1434 hours UTC. And finally, uh, Soyuz STA will launch with a frigate upper stage and will be carrying the CSO-1 satellite, which is the first of three new generation high resolution optical imaging satellites for the French military and this launch will be December 18th at 1637 UTC launching out of Kourou. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And that brings us to the end of today's episode so let's go ahead and deorbit and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9am Pacific 12pm Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk to us directly by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, and that's it. So we'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.